I'll be reading to you from um, John chapter 19, and we'll start our reading at the second part of verse 16. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice placed and, and fastened on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but this man claimed to be the King of the Jews. Pilate answers, answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments among them, and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Well, uh, good morning, everyone. It's great to, uh, to see you all. I, uh, I wonder if you have ever found yourself in a situation of uh, extreme distress. Maybe you were involved in an accident and uh, suffered severe injury and unbearable pain. Uh, maybe you were put under relentless pressure at work until you reached your breaking point. Maybe you experienced a, uh, a staggering financial loss through a bad decision or a, or a failed investment. Maybe you were the victim of crime and the things that were done to you will haunt you for the rest of your days. But I want to ask you, how much worse is this kind of distress when it seems to also be completely unfair? You're taken to court even though you've done nothing wrong. You're sacked from your job even though you thought you were a reliable worker. You're bullied relentlessly, even though you've done nothing to provoke it. You're told that a loved one has been hit by a drunk driver through no fault of their own. Even then, that distress could be multiplied still further if it seems that no one even cares. We often see examples of that when there's a natural disaster, like recent floods in New South Wales and Queensland, 
People losing homes, pets and possessions, businesses and livelihoods destroyed, loved ones injured or even killed. But yet how much worse it must be when the emergency services don't arrive or the aid doesn't get through or the locals are looting instead of helping or the insurance company refuses to pay out or the government does nothing to assist. Can you imagine being in such a situation of extreme hardship, anguish and agony that's completely unfair and no one even cares? How do you think you would respond? If you're anything like me, then I think there'd be a fair bit of upset and misery and self-pity. If you're anything like me, then I think there'd be a fair bit of annoyance and anger and resentment. Extreme circumstances do not always bring out the best in people, and often they bring out the worst. But, that doesn't, but doesn't that make the story that we have just read from John chapter 19 all the more astonishing? For here in this passage, we find Jesus going through an experience of utter horrific distress, worse than we could even imagine. But yet his response, my friends, his response, it will blow your mind. And so we're going to investigate this today. And it all begins in verses 16 to 18, where we're told, first of all, about the cross. Jesus has been arrested, as we saw last Sunday. He's been put on trial before the Jewish leaders who would have loved to have executed him, but they had no legal right to do so as they were subject to the Romans. And so he was sent to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, to be tried and sentenced. However, Pilate could find no basis for a charge against him. And so he attempts to have him released, but the Jews wouldn't hear of it. And then he had Jesus beaten and humiliated in an effort to satisfy their demands. But in response, they shouted over and again, crucify him. And in the end, the governor, well, he was too cowardly to do what was right. And so at the beginning of verse 16, we're told that finally Pilate handed him over to be crucified. And thus at the beginning of our passage for today, we're told, so the soldiers took charge of Jesus. And in a kind of bookend to that statement at the end of verse 24, it says, so this is what the soldiers did. So what did they do? Well, they took charge of Jesus. Now what we're talking about here is an execution squad of four men. Four brutal, hardened military men who were expert in torment and killing. By now, Jesus had already been flogged. A most terrible punishment where the subject is tied to a post and whipped by several strong torturers until they were exhausted. And the whips would be made of leather straps embedded with bone and lead. And the results were so savage that sometimes victims would be left with their bones and their entrails exposed. And so these ruthless soldiers took a bloodied and a weakened Jesus and they made him carry his own cross. This would have been the heavy horizontal crossbeam 
as the uprights were generally left permanently in the ground. And he was made to parade through the streets of Jerusalem as a deterrent to others, but also as an act of even further humiliation. The other Gospels reveal to us that Jesus was so weak that another man was commandeered to carry the cross from a certain point. And they eventually made their way to that ominously named place of the skull, which in Aramaic is Golgotha, and in Latin is Calvary. And in verse 18, John simply says, there they crucified him. My friends, take a look at your, at your own hands, your own wrists, and imagine someone pounding a large iron nail through there to attach you to a heavy wooden beam. Imagine being hoisted up in the air so that that beam can be attached to the upright. And imagine more nails being hammered through your feet, but not so to secure you further. No, those nails were hammered to provide an excruciating way for you to lift yourself so that your lungs can catch a breath. They crucified him. And John adds that it was along with two others, one on each side. He was crucified between two despicable men, two hardened criminals, who utterly deserved their fate. And so he truly was, as Isaiah 53 predicted, numbered with the transgressors. And there they were left to die. My friends, can we even begin to grasp the utter distress that Jesus experienced on the cross? But that brings us to verses 19 to 22, where we're also told about the charge. We're told that Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It was standard practice to place a sign above the head of the condemned describing their crime. And what was that crime? It read, we're told, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Here in these words, we already see that something doesn't add up. For since when is, a, is it a crime to be a king? And since when do kings find themselves enthroned upon instruments of torture and execution? You can see why the Jewish leaders piped up. For many of their people were reading this sign because Golgotha was close to the city. In fact, many people from all over were reading the sign because it was written in Aramaic, the language of the Jews. It was written in Latin, the language of the Romans. And it was written in Greek, the common language across the entire Roman Empire. And so the chief priests of the Jews, they protested to Pilate. Do not write the king of the Jews, they said, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. They were horrified that Jesus, even as he was being crucified, was being put out as being their leader. And so they wanted the, char the charge modified to explain that he had falsely claimed that title and that's why he was being condemned. But Pilate replies in one small final act of rebellion and provocation. What I have written, I have written. The Jewish leaders may have gotten what they wanted, but he would get his own back 
by declaring to the world that this pathetic and dying man was their king. But of course, behind Pilate's unwitting actions was the very will of God. For in reality, the sign was 100% accurate. Jesus was the king of the Jews. For this was far more than just a royal title. It was a messianic title. And Jesus was the promised Messiah, the Son of God who had come to save his people. So what this sign highlights is that not only was Jesus suffering unspeakable pain and agony, but he was doing so unfairly. Those criminals on either side, they were suffering too, but at least they deserved what they got. But Jesus deserved nothing. He had done no wrong. He had committed no crime. In fact, he had lived a perfect and pure life, harming no one and serving everyone. And so the charge above him said, the king of the Jews, which is no charge at all. And even if the Jews had their way, even if it had said that he claimed to be the king of the Jews, that still would not have been a crime. Because his claim was true, whether they liked it or not. So not only was Jesus in extreme distress, but how much greater that must have been, knowing that it was so hypocritical, so undeserved, so totally unfair. He suffered horrendously through absolutely no fault of his own. But we move on now to verses 23 and 24, and here we discover what the soldiers busied themselves with once they'd finished nailing him to that cross. It says, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. One thing this tells us is that upon crucifixion, Jesus had been stripped completely naked. Just another step in his awful, awful humiliation. Could it get any worse? A king, a good king, a divinely appointed king, stripped of any last shred of dignity, exposed for all to see. This also tells us that these four men were willing to murder an innocent man and then seek to benefit from the bloody clothes off his back. Here, you have his sandals. They look like your size. Here, and you take his head covering. And you take his belt. And I'll have his robe. Can you even imagine it? And then there was his tunic. His tunic. They didn't want to ruin it. So who would get that one? After all, these men didn't want to be unfair, did they? So what would they do? Well, let's gamble for it, and the winner takes it home. It's really quite ludicrous, isn't it? I think William Barclay sums it up well. He says, No picture so shows the indifference of the world to Christ. There on the cross, Jesus was dying in agony. And there at the foot of the cross, the soldiers threw their dice 
as if it didn't matter. In other words, they didn't care. They just murdered the Son of God, the very one who had given them life, the very one who will judge the living and the dead. And there they are, like children, squabbling over his underwear. And there's a strong sense in which these soldiers represent the masses. But John reminds us that even this was fulfilment of prophecy. For in Psalm 22, it says, Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Not only did Jesus suffer utter humiliation and physical agony, but he did so totally unfairly and he did so even though no one seemed to care how deep his distress must have been. And yet we know that what he suffered at the hands of men was in fact nothing compared to what was really going on. For as he hung there, he experienced the utter forsakenness, the complete rejection, the burning wrath of God. And that is something, my friends, that we cannot even begin to comprehend. But I ask you, how did, how did Jesus respond? Were his thoughts those of misery, desolation and feeling sorry for himself? Was he seeking the sympathy of those who were watching? Or were his thoughts those of annoyance and rage and revenge? Did he call out to his executed, executors, you'll pay for this, you dogs, just you wait and see? No, he didn't. For in verses 25 to 27, we see how he actually responded. And it wasn't self-pity, nor was it anger. But my friends, it was compassion. Compassion on those who needed him most. For we're told that near the cross was a group of at least five people. There was the disciple whom he loved, which we know was the, the way that the Apostle John, the author of this book, referred to himself. There was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the wife of Clopas, and also Jesus' aunt, who was probably Salome. And finally, there was his own dear mother, Mary. Since the story of his birth, Mary hasn't really featured in Jesus' ministry. But here she is, near the cross, watching her own son and how her heart must have been broken. But for Mary, unlike everybody else, she wasn't just losing a companion, a leader, a friend, but she was losing her firstborn. She was losing her own flesh and blood, the one who she needed to take care of her in later years. And so the tragedy for her was even greater still. But yet then we reach these amazingly beautiful words. It says, when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Don't you find that totally astonishing? 
This is not Jesus with his bags packed about to go off on a fun holiday. This is Jesus, battered and bruised, flogged and ridiculed, bleeding and in agony, pinned to a cross, barely able to breathe, on the brink of death. This is Jesus with the weight of of the world on his shoulders and so much more than that. And he looks down and he sees his mum. And in spite of his utter distress, his heart went out to her. He took pity on her and he cared for her. And so, as he knew he wouldn't be around anymore, he asked his beloved disciple, his best friend John, to look after her. And that's what he would faithfully do. And even though these are just three short verses, they speak volumes about the true spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ. For here in his darkest hour, he reveals his deepest feelings, his truest emotions, the supreme tenderness of his own heart. For here he reveals his profound compassion for those in need, for those he loves, for his own precious mum. But as we near our conclusion, I want us to to ponder where we find ourselves in this story. I mean, do we identify with the soldiers or do we identify with Jesus' mother? Well, the truth is, my friends, we identify with both. For as horrified as we may be at the way those brutal men treated our Lord, The fact of the matter is that we are equally responsible for what took place on that day. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. In 1 Peter 2, Peter says he he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. In 1 John chapter 3, John tells us that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. You see, my friends, were it not for the fact that we are sinful people, rebellious against God, hurtful toward other people, proud, selfish, sarcastic, immoral, if it were not for all of that, then Jesus would never, ever have needed to suffer and die. But he did it because our sin deserved punishment And he desired to save us from that. He did it because sin has a price which he was willing to pay, to pay on our behalf. And that is why he went to the cross. And so he may well have suffered the most terrible, unspeakable distress. And he may well have done it even though he was totally totally unfair And he may well have done it even though no one seemed to care. In fact, he may well have suffered both the harshest torture of man, but at the very same time, the pure and terrifying wrath of God. But let us never forget that he did it all for us. And so as we sang earlier, it truly was our sin that held him there until it was accomplished. And so we can and we should identify with these soldiers and the things that they did. 
For we, every one of us, were responsible for the death of Jesus. We were holding that whip. We were stripping him bare. We were hammering those nails. But yet it's because of his death that we can also identify with Mary, his mother. For my friends, as we marvel at his deep compassion for this poor woman, we need to realise that it reflects the deep compassion that he also has for each and every one of us. For while it most certainly was our sin that held him there, at the very same time it was his own love that held him there. For God so loved this world that he gave his one and only Son. And greater love has no one than this, than to lay down their life for their friends. And so the whole point is that even though we are terrible sinners, even though we made ourselves his enemies, even though we were the ones who deserved to die, that Jesus has looked upon us in astounding mercy. He has had pity on us and he has sacrificed himself for our rescue. And all that we need do is own up to our own sin before him and trust him for our redemption, for our freedom, for the salvation of our souls. And look, I just truly hope that you have done that. I truly hope that you have stopped depending on your own goodness, stopped depending on the, the temporary and unreliable gods of this world, I hope that every person here today has come to Jesus and that you have put your hope in him. For if you have, then you can truly experience the depths of his compassion in the blessing of your salvation. But you can also experience the depths of his compassion as he walks with you every day. For my friends, the message of the Bible is that he loves you. And he's concerned for you and he cares for you and he provides for you. And you never, ever have to think that he will turn his back because he has promised that he will never, ever let you go. Our Lord Jesus was filled with such tenderness for his own mother. And he is filled with the very same tenderness for me and for you. And so let us find comfort. Let us be encouraged and let us rejoice in the marvellous compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. How it pains us, Lord God, to, to read the terrible things that happened to Jesus on that Friday all those years ago. How he was mocked and humiliated, tortured and crucified. And Lord God, we know that he didn't deserve it. And we know that the world didn't care. But it pains us even more to know that it was all because of us. But yet, Lord God, what a wonder to see how Jesus responded in compassion. Compassion for his own mother. And how that reminds us of the deep compassion that he also has in his heart for us. Lord Jesus Christ. We want to thank you with all of our hearts 
for suffering in our place. We thank you for dying so that we can have eternal life. Jesus, please help us to turn from our old ways and to put all our trust in you. And if there's anyone here who hasn't reached that point, we ask you to work in their hearts today. Please convict them of their own sin. Please help them to see that they can find forgiveness and freedom in you. And Lord, may every single one of us be refreshed and restored by your compassion this day. May we experience it anew. May it fill us with joy and with thankfulness. And may it be reflected in how we live our lives in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.